I'm Steve Yasko, and welcome to Why Did You Run, an occasional podcast about why people choose to run for public office. Today, we're speaking with Mark Fleedner, who ran unsuccessfully for district attorney in Brooklyn uh, last year and, and had a few interesting twists and turns in his political career. Welcome to the program, Mark. Thank you. And I appreciate your starting with unsuccessful. It's well, a good way to get started. With well, what's interesting about it is, is that while I, well, what I think what's interesting about your story is that while you did not win, um, you you had some major impacts across the city of New York, which is no small feat to do. Well, I hope so. I hope so because the the, the reason why I ran was because I wanted to to uh, motivate some systemic change that was long overdue in the role of district attorney, which is something that's pretty specific. So I guess uh, I should make a, a bit of a, of a, a bit of a disclaimer. Yeah, you should. <laughs> Mark and I have been friends for 30 plus years. Yeah. Um, we were fraternity brothers at American University where we both got our undergraduate degrees in communications. Mark went on to get his law degree from the George Washington University in 1987. And, uh, and so we, we have some history that I thought listeners should know about. So expect this to be a lot more fun than, and, and rollicking than, uh, <laughs> than, so, than, than our previous conversations with other, with other candidates. So, so the thing that I noticed about all of this, um, and, I, and I sort of want to set the stage by saying, I do not remember you being as progressive <laughs> as the positions that you took in your campaign. How did your political views evolve over the years? That's, that, that's a logical question, because I left college deciding that I wanted to be a prosecutor, which is law enforcement, right? And it's it's not progressive. It, it, it's actually, you know, sort of like law and order and, and let, let, let's keep uh, the, the status quo in, in, in check. But it was an evolution. It was an evolution over decades of work as a prosecutor. Uh, what happened was I always gravitated toward victim-based crimes, uh, sexual assault, uh, child you, abuse. Which you did for like 20 years yeah, in different yeah. roles. No, I did it for a lot. But what, So what that is is an advocacy on kind of progressive positions, right? And then I ultimately evolved to the point where I was doing, uh, I, I was prosecuting hate crimes and civil rights prosecutions, which specifically related to um, police misconduct and police abuse of individuals. So what I ended up doing is when I, I, I tried, I, I, I got an indictment and try the case successfully when people weren't uh, where a police officer had shot another individual. Uh, and, 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 and it's a very interesting case because I think most people think of a white officer shooting right. a black kid who's reaching for a cell phone and, and the officer claiming, claiming it's a gun. Right. This was, was a little more complicated in that the officer was Asian American. Right. The victim, I don't, uh, you can say the his name. Yeah. 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 Um, was, was black. There were a lot of interesting nuances to the case and a stairwell and those sorts of things. Yeah, I mean, what was interesting about it is while most of the things that we've all looked at, we've, we've watched videos and we've been kind of horrified by the fact that it looked like there was intentional conduct, this was a reckless act. This was somebody shooting into a dark stairwell in violation of a lot of training that he'd gotten about use of force. Tragically, because of a ricochet of a bullet, uh, this person who was just walking down the stairwell, completely you know, innocent of any misconduct, uh, was killed, a, a, a black man. So it was kind of a, a, uh, 
cause of a lot of conversation in the city. And we were able to get an indictment and we were able to get a conviction. And then I, as the chief of civil rights of the Brooklyn DA's office, that's where it took place, was um, concerned because the, the district attorney at the time decided that he was going to ask for no jail time for the convicted, it happens, Asian officer. And, and, and for folks on the West Coast, the, um, the, the Brooklyn DA at the time is famous on the East Coast. Uh, his name was Kenneth Thompson. He's deceased now. He was the first uh, black DA in Brooklyn, uh, probably long overdue because Brooklyn has, has such a, 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 you know, a vibrant black culture and full black culture. But in any case, he was asking for a non-jail sentence under circumstances where anybody else who was convicted of uh, what was called manslaughter in the second degree would have faced jail time. And I was, I was morally opposed to that. I felt that when we identified what the crime was and we got the indictment and we went to trial and we proved it, that, that we were sending a message to the jury that, excuse me, to the community that uh, police officers were going to be held to the same standard as everybody else who's convicted of manslaughter in the second degree. So to ask for a sentence that's not consistent with what everybody else would get was uh, something that was an ethical dilemma for me. And so I, uh, I was opposed and I left the office. And I became somebody who was very clear that the system nationally and certainly in New York City was, uh, was disproportionately impacting on, on black folks and, and, and brown folks and uh, that we needed to make systemic change. And that's where I became a progressive. Well, so after Thompson passes away, he is replaced with Gonzalez. Right, a Latino, uh, right, first Latino DA, right. And so before the election where you ran, he, how long was he in office? Less than a year, less than a year. But, yeah. but he became very, pretty popular, didn't he? Well, he was the party candidate, right? And he was, uh, he was, it was a continuation of the legacy of the, uh, the first black DA. And so he kind of... Uh, Played for that, but he wasn't as progressive as I was. And the the DA who was deceased was somebody who had run on and had put himself out there as somebody that was going to really seek progress in criminal justice reform. So you resign. You're doing individual civil rights cases, right. and and I was critical of the office. I was critical of the office because they were not as progressive as I, I thought they should be in this time. Yeah. Somewhere during this period, you made that decision. Yeah, I, I, I felt that. Uh, here's what I believe. I believe that now, now, you know, in the in the context of your of your broadcast, you're talking about all kinds of different uh, runs for office. When when a prosecutor runs for office, uh, it's it's a very specific thing. You know, there's generally the law and order concept. But my belief is that the only way that criminal justice reform is going to take place, and I'm talking about sort of undoing generations. Of, uh, of really, you know, um, discrimination against people of color that uh, the prosecutor has got to be the person that is committing themselves to progress. And that was my platform. That's kind of interesting because I don't think people think about a prosecutor as a progressive protector of the community. They think about a prosecutor as looking at a case i mean i mean it's like it's like what we see on law and order it's like right, what we see on right. svu it's it's what we see on 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 tv you know we think of a of a prosecutor as 
weighing the facts and that the morality of the decisions are are buried deep. The, the personal morality decisions are buried deep, but but as, as you got there, came up, they, they came to your surface. That's a pretty good way to put it. I mean, the role of the prosecutor is to seek justice. And if in the broadest evaluation of how the system is working, that there's injustice built in, then we've got to change the system. It's our obligation to do that. That's the way I feel. There's a movement. Um, there are folks. There's a, there's there's a guy named Sean King who was a great. Uh, I think he was a, a worked for the Daily News, and he's now devoted his career to trying to support progressive prosecutors because we've got to undo uh, many generations of of bias really in the system. There is a prosecutor that a civil rights attorney that is a previous civil rights attorney that succeeded in Philadelphia. Mm. His name is Larry Krasner. And he's the first real progressive uh, prosecutor. And New York City, interestingly enough, doesn't have one where you would think it would be more logical that there would be one. And I wanted to be that person. Plus, I was openly gay, which is an interesting twist. It, it is an interesting twist, as, as I think you, you were the first openly gay candidate for a district attorney office anywhere in America. Yeah, yeah. So so it's kind of important to understand that journey that you took to being the first openly gay candidate for for district attorney, not you know, of, of a pretty important place in America, in Brooklyn. Brooklyn is yeah. pretty important. So 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 I will say that my first experience with Mark in Brooklyn was when I went to visit his wife and his at that time, I think four or five-year-old son Dylan right. um, in in Brooklyn Heights before Brooklyn uh, really took off. Gentrification is basically what it was. Right before Williamsburg was right. really there. You got married right Absolutely. out of college, age um, twenty-one, um, closeted, um, high school sweethearts. Yeah, it's a story of our generation. I'm fifty-five, almost 60, 56 years old, and there are many men that sort of took the course that I took because I loved uh, the idea of family. I loved the idea of having children. I also loved the idea of being a prosecutor. And this was not a culture in which uh, gays were accepted. Because of all the things that I wanted out of life, I, I struggled to stay in the closet until you know, well, it, well, it, it was the funny. '80s. You know, right? It was, exactly. It was, not just the '80s. I mean, we graduated in '84, so you know, we are we are definitely in the period where AIDS is happening. Right. The era of Ronald Reagan. Right. It's it's the era of Christian evangelicals influencing a lot of policy and and perceptions of America. So, a time that I don't think people, and especially younger people today, really understand that being gay was was a lot more difficult than it is today. I mean, it's it's like now pride is pride isn't just about being gay. Pride is like pride's like a party. Right. You go to you go to San Francisco. Pride's pride's like oh wow, there's a party and the drinks are cheap. Let's go. Right. Exactly. You know? No, there's no way that they could have a perspective. I mean. And, and in law enforcement, it was it's very it was it was very homophobic. It was you know the, the message was that there was no place for gays in a police department in a prosecutor's office. And I loved my job, mm -hmm. so I'm sure I actually think that the fact that I loved 
that work kept me in the closet longer than it would have otherwise. But as happens when you're a closeted uh, person in the LGBTQ community, everything you know explodes and implodes at the same time, and and there's a there's a coming out process. So that I started in the Brooklyn DA's office in 1987 as a married man, and I came back 14 years later, having done other prosecution work, uh, as an out man. Um, your son Dylan, who's grown up to be a filmmaker right. is extremely progressive. <laughs> yes, he and, is. And, and he did a lot of work on your campaign as well. Yeah, no, he was, it was something that we actually did as a father and son together in a lot of ways because uh, he is, is very concerned about progress. And what I was doing kind of spoke to him and he just, he, he filmed it. He filmed it because it was an interesting process, but it was beyond just a, a film a project. We, uh, we sort of gained a symmetry, the two of us, that was, yeah, it was kind did, of Did it bring cool. you closer together? Yeah, absolutely. Um, in a way that, you know, pro- probably always define us. And, uh, and, you know, it's also, this is happening at a time when social media was changing politics. And so I, I ran for Brooklyn DA, was not successful, was not the party candidate, but, you know, did okay. Well, and then there's kind of an interesting twist. So, so you finished third? Yep. Third out of six candidates, Third out of six, yeah. which, which ain't bad. Well, it wasn't bad because I was not somebody who had this great, either a bankroll or an ability to raise money. And I just want to say one thing, if we're talking about why did you run and maybe chapter two, which is why would you maybe never run again? Politics today, uh, June 2018, which is when we're uh, recording this, is too much based on money, the ability to raise money, the ability to access money. Um, I was running because I was an advocate who knew what the job should be, uh, not because I had this great ability to raise money. And that's actually the criteria for being a good candidate now is, can you raise money? That's something we got to look at. But yet there's sort of an interesting twist (laughs) to to all of this. you come in third, right? It's 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 still. Some I go back to my business. I'm well, running my so, little so, firm. Yeah. yeah, you are. But and 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 before I get to the twist, how did you feel about that? How did you did did you, how did you feel that night when the, when the numbers came in? I mean, I was disappointed, but I also knew that that we had like 18 times less money than the candidate who won, and so I felt good about how far we'd gotten and how many people had had heard my message. How many months later, so this, uh, so the primary is in the summer, Brooklyn primary. Well, September, September. Was it September? Yeah. Somehow through the community connections, and I will say that because I did follow your campaign, you developed some pretty deep relationships with grassroots community organiz- organizing groups. Well, I had been, I had been supported by, endorsed by um, Bernie Sanders, related uh, our revolution and the, the folks that, that but um, no, I was endorsed by some truly progressive, uh, you know, organizations and um, and I had a big social media following. Social media was a big part of, of as far as I got. So Cy Vance ran into some big problems within the scope of one well, week. Well, his dad was uh, was a, a, a kind of a national figure, but it was sort of understood that he was going to take over for this guy named Robert Morgenthau, who had been the DA forever in Manhattan. He was probably the prototype for the DAs on Law and Order. 
and Cy Vance came in and, and he took over and he's had he had money and he had blue blood and all of those things. But he had a really bad week. And it was right after I had, you know, lost the campaign and it was going about my business. And it was a week when two things happened. One of them was that it was it was revealed that he had squashed a uh, a investigation involving the Trumps because they were Ivanka and uh, I think Donald Jr. were trying to sell Trump Soho, and they basically committed fraud by suggesting that many people had bought into Trump Soho and, um, and, and in order to entice more people to buy in. And so his people said to him, you should indict these folks, and he didn't. At the same time, he got contributions from Trump. And in the, also in the same week, uh, it was found out that Harvey Weinstein, the now nationally infamous Harvey Weinstein, if not internationally, um, had uh, been accused of rape and uh, had contributed to his campaign. So people were like, people are buying their way out of jail. What do we do? He's the only Democrat on the ballot in Manhattan. What do we do? Let's find a writing candidate. And they, they remembered uh, there were people that said, what about this guy, uh, Mark for DA from uh, Brooklyn? You all of a sudden, you had no money. Zero. Nada. Nothing. And, and, and you essentially had these organizations that, how did you work that? Well, social media exclusively. And so, I mean, ultimately the takeaway is that social media, while a lot of the people who went to college and learned politics think that social media is not worth anything, it is. However, it's got to be matched with a ground game. And we didn't have that because we didn't have the money. But social media took us to 12,000 plus uh, write-in votes with my weird name being spelled exactly correctly because we did a little 30-second video. Lots of wonderful people volunteering to do this stuff because they were concerned about the state of, of, of the DA race and politics. And um, I guess my thought about all that was, was just getting any traction in Manhattan. You know, you're, you're talking a market of 10 million people. How did that social media play into get play into like say coverage from radio stations, TV stations, oh my goodness, newspapers. That's, that's so interesting. Well, first of all, some celebrities, some some some, you know, the Piper Perabo is is an actress who had been on in um, Coyote Ugly for those of us that are of a certain age, and um, she ordered pencils, vote in, you know, write in Mark from DA, and she was and and she sent it out on social media. People with who had the social media connections, but. That led to uh, Brian Lair, who is in, on PBS in, in, in the, the, excuse me, the NPR equivalent in, in New York City, uh, WNYW, right? WNYC, NPR member station. Thank you. I don't know all this I guess, well, one of the things I think folks who have been listening or know me is that I've spent a long time in public radio. So Brian Lair is in the morning in New York City, and people listen. Progressives listen, man. He talks about the issues, and he talks about them bluntly. So some woman calls into Brian Lair and says, because he was talking about Vance and his ethical problems, and said, there's, a, there's an alternative, Mark for DA. So then I get a call from Brian Lair saying, come on the show. And I do the show. And it just, word gets out. So the combination of social media that leads to radio, didn't crack TV necessarily, 
And um, and on election yeah. day, we were you know we were there. You were happy. Yeah, it was. I mean, I mean, you did you did you have any expectation? No, no. I mean, six weeks. We had six weeks and zero money, and I was thrilled that people said we have no option on the ballot. What can we do? And they came up with an option, which was a write-in. And I'm pretty sure we've established that in the history of New York City, that it's the most write-in votes ever for any uh, you know office, and. This this was happening at a time a year ago now, when people were saying, "What in God's name can we do to change a political system that is not reflecting our values?" And people are coming up with options. What do you think you're going to do in the future to maintain this change that you seem to have ignited last year? Do you feel an obligation to continue, or do you continue thinking about what you might do in the future? Well, I, I, I see an obligation to continue to be a watchdog, specifically on the DA issue, because I'm not a politician by birth or, or, or you know, um, development or anything. I, I, I'm an advocate. And um, so we've kept the at mark for DA Twitter active, and I'm a watchdog on, on prosecutors throughout the country, and I have a pretty decent following. And I will continue to support really progressive candidates. And that's my obligation. Whether I'm the guy that should be a candidate in the future, I don't really necessarily see it that way. I want to continue to do good work, and I, and I am in the context of actually civil rights for people with dis disabilities right now. I'm, I'm with a, a New York organization. But um, it, it's to just it's pe hold people's feet to the fire. How do you look back and say, I never expected life to turn out this way? Sure. It's an, it's an absolutely different life than I could have envisioned. But don't forget that I was born in 1962, and nobody born in 1962 could have ever imagined that I could marry a man in my lifetime. We never would have imagined that. So it, it's a journey. I mean, life is a journey, but I, I'm following the journey that is consistent with the moral and ethical standards that my father, who still watches Fox News, taught, and mother, you know, who was a public school teacher, uh, taught me. And I think we just have to follow that road. But right now, following that road means being, being really vigilant uh, because our country has taken a detour that none of us could have imagined and we've got to be heard. And um, so I'm gonna be heard, you know. If I've got an, a platform at all, I'm going to use it. Mark, I'm glad to have been your friend for so many years, and thank you so much for talking with Same. us today. Same.